dive in and complete a couple of thoughts that were left open-ended. When it came to uh, diet, we've spoken of, we've spoken of weight, we've spoken of, you know, um, ancestral foods and eating. And there's a few holes that still need to be plugged in there uh, in terms of how to eat. You know, okay, so what's the answer to all of this? Um, we've touched on it a little bit here and there in some of the previous episodes, but uh, we're going to dive into a couple of examples here that will really kind of help you guide your thinking. Because, uh, you know, our belief is always if we can teach you how instead of just what, then you can do it on your own. Then you're, you're, you're educated and you can move on. So you know, we've spoken of that our DNA is somewhere between 200 to 250,000 years old. You heard this earlier. What that means is that we are not like grandma, right? When we think of evolution or what we inherit or our capacity, we think of, well, why, why grandparents did this? No, you were like a people that you wouldn't even remember. There's no tree that goes back that far. So you are like people of 200 to 250,000 years ago. So you have to consider the blip in time of our current modern reality versus the duration of this DNA being who we are, making us who we are, um, our choices had to be very different. We're not wired for what we think we're wired for. And we've said this before, and I just wanted to preface what we're going into with that is that when we look at how to eat, you know, what, what do we, what is our body actually meant to do? You have to start by understanding we are not who we are today. We're not who our grandparents we are. We aren't, we aren't who our great, great parents, great, great, great grandparents were. We're of something from 200,000 years ago uh, and moving forward. So we have to consider that in our thinking. So let me give you a simple example. Think about today, you know, you're, you're desiring something and you click on Uber Eats and you get it. You could be having Western food for breakfast, sushi for dinner, and Thai food for lunch. You know, mix it up. You get what you want when you want because it's so easy and convenient. Now compare that to the reality of someone from 200 years ago, 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. First of all, the variety didn't exist. Second, it wasn't available. What did food actually look like? What it looked like was it was first of all seasonal. So you ate what was available in the season. Second, it was jurisdictional. You ate what was available where you lived. Why are these things important? Because, well, there's multiple reasons. Firstly, seasons prepare you for the next season. So, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of years of our bodies going through these cyclical seasonal changes, we learn, our DNA learns what it needs to cope with. And an example of that is fruit. So we think today it's so easy to get fruit and let's have some and it's healthy, which is all true. Um, you should have some. There's, there's micronutrients, uh, antioxidants, amazing things that are in certain fruits that do amazing work for your body. But then you think about how did our ancestors access fruit? Well, they had it in the spring and the summer. It was highly seasonal. And what's going on with fruit that made that so important? Well, the sugar that's in fruit is fructose. And fructose is one of the few sugars that's actually metabolized in your liver. So your, your liver is highly implicit in, you know, processing fructose. Uh, fructose is one of those rare things 
that can actually lead to what we call non-alcohol fatty liver syndrome. So literally this load on the liver that leads to fat that looks like somebody who is an alcoholic because of the load on the liver and the, the fat that ends up getting stored on it, uh, which then leads to this visceral fat on the gut that's hard to break down, that brown fat that we refer to, that gets stored. Uh, it's part of that cycle uh, of not being able to clear. So why did this happen? Well, our ancestors needed to be ready for winter. It was harsh. It was difficult. And fat storage was really important because food was hard to get. And so it's no surprise if you think about the biology of it or call it the miracle of it, however you want to look at it, that what, what is made available to us to eat in the spring and summer was designed to prepare us for winter. Very specific sugar that typically only comes from fruit. You can get it in other sources now, but ancestrally came from fruit, which causes a load on your liver, which causes the storage of fat on your belly and a deep, uh, sorry, the uh, hard to burn brown fat, which provides you nutrition that you need through the winter when food is scarce. Now we fr eat fruit daily. And I'm not telling you to stop. What I'm telling you is to consider uh, how your body actually processes this stuff. You know, it requires a liver. It puts a load on your liver. Uh, and you aren't meant to eat this stuff throughout the year. And this is where people gain weight in the winter. It's exaggerated because you're all of a sudden eating things that you weren't meant to eat. And so the seasonal uh, thinking is very important. Seasonal to where you are. And that's where jurisdictional becomes important. So the foods that were native to wherever it is you live. And now there's a bit of a complication there because a lot of us don't live where we're genetically designed for. And so you think about foods that are, you know, rich in vitamin D like dairy, for example, and cheese, which was designed to be stored in a time like winter where you could get your proteins and your vitamin D when sun was scarce. Why did that happen? Why did that become something that made people feel good? And, you know, this, this food was available to sort of put away. Um, so you think about these types of things and you have to look at it from multiple perspectives. First of all, where did you come from? What was their ancestral reality? What did the seasons look like? And what foods would have been available during the, those seasons naturally? Not importing it from Argentina or flying it in from Peru, but what actually grew from that earth during that season? And where did you come from? Then you have to tweak and understand where do I now live? Where am I now? And what adjustments do I have to make? Because we always talk about, you know, your genes are one thing, this is who you are, but your environment, nutrition and lifestyle, uh, those are the loads that take you from propensity or risk to you're actually sick. Um, and this is where, again, you have to look at it in this path, which is, where do I come from? Some of us can't figure that out. Some of us, it's a little more clear and succinct. What did the seasons look like? And what were available during those seasons? That's your baseline. Then you have to tweak, where do I now live? And what adjustments do I have to make? For example, is there a longer winter, which means something? Is there a longer summer, which means something? And all of a sudden I have to make adjustments to my food and start to see how you feel so much better. Start to see how those last 10 pounds, you just couldn't figure out kind of go away. 
And this is also true, going back to what I said earlier, of food of convenience. Like I press a button and I get Thai food for lunch and I get sushi for dinner. That was not the reality of how we lived. The reality, again, of looking at the majority of those 200 or 250,000 years was there was one thing that we harvested and we probably ate that thing for a few weeks. Why is that important? We've always said that the second half of personalization is the gut microbiome. You have to understand what's happening in your gut to know where you're at and what you're doing and how you're affecting your gut can grossly change where you're at and take you from healthy to sick quickly. So if your gut flora was designed to consistently eat the same thing for weeks at a time and then make a shift to something else when something else was harvested and when if it was designed to eat seasonally where in a certain season there was more fruit uh, there was more plants and in another season there was more grains that was stored uh, there was more dairy that was stored there was you know uh, more meat that was salted or fish that was salted and put away so that it can get through the winter the difference between that and forget about every season forget about every month forget about every week every meal is different literally every meal you have offers you that variety you want just because it's so easy to get so that disparity between the way we now live that luxurious uh, uh, ability for choice versus the way we lived the way our ancestors lived and what we're actually wired for so start thinking about again going back to what i said about seasonal what was available how do i tweak that based on where i now am and start to adjust your meals where there's a little more consistency where you cook like grandma used to cook for the week you know she'd spend the weekend cooking and there'd be leftovers and leftovers are often shunned upon nowadays and there's so much food waste uh, it's unbelievable how much we throw in the garbage because we want the next thing and the next thing and we're driven more by what we desire in the moment than the economics or you know sort of the the humbleness of realizing that there's food to finish in the fridge um, and so if you start to make adjustments like this all of a sudden there's a relief brought to your gut there's the ability for your gut to develop the flora to focus on a specific specific type of food and continue eating that and continue breaking it down and continue you know living inflammation free at least when it comes to gut health uh it, it will and this is not easy to do in today's context uh, especially when there's kids demanding variety uh but you have to start to slowly make it a habit so consider that when it comes to your meal planning food intake uh that the way we live today versus what our ancestors came from food was harvested stored salted you know whatever it took to make it last and it was seasonal in nature and this affects obviously as we said health in general but uh, there's there's little things that you may never never think about like the fructose and what it does to fat and it causes you to store it's intentionally designed to cause you to store fat so that you can get through the winter which we don't even think about uh, and also what it's doing to your gut the other thing to consider when you're looking at how our ancestors ate versus what we're eating today is nutrition density. So the food we eat today is not necessarily designed for maximum density per weight, per size, per whatever um, unit of measure you want to use. Uh, it's, it's typically designed 
for its marketability. Apples are covered in wax to make them nice and shiny. So you don't even know what an apple really looks like anymore. Um, you know, plants are grown to a much larger size. So you feel like you're getting value. A potato used to look like something smaller than a golf ball. It was highly nutrient dense. Uh, if you looked at the nutrient breakdown of what a potato used to be before they became industrialized and commercialized, they were protein rich. A potato meal would have been great. You know, your meat and potatoes means something very different today than what it used to mean. So now what you have is the expansion of this unit. You know, it's become much bigger. But what didn't extend into that sort of size or mass is the nutrient value. It's just sugar. It's just, you know, the starches that it, it's a bigger starch. Probably if you were to measure it with the same amount of nutrition as that golf ball sized potato. So what does this mean? We've been led down this path of needing to consume much more calories, a higher number of calories to receive the nutrient density that we used to get from something le far less calorically rich. That leads to weight issues. That leads to mood and behavior issues. That leads to inflammatory issues. Uh, that leads to insulin issues. So all of a sudden you have to think about the food that I eat in its size and the way that I understand it to be is not really what it was meant to be. You look at something like chicken. You know, in the 1950s, a chicken used to be under a kilo. Just under a kilo. Fast forward, uh, you know, turn of the century, a chicken was about two kilos. Now the average chicken is four kilos. We have quadrupled the size of what we're consuming Yes, it's still 30% uh, fat and 70% protein, but the nutrient value, you know, make your chicken soup and heal from your cold, that's gone. Or at least it's, it's, uh, it's been expanded into, again, again, a greater mass, so it's less available per unit. And so you have to think about what does food actually look like? How many calories am I taking in to get the nutrition value that I thought I was supposed to get? And what is the reality of how nutrient-dense food can actually be? So it's still possible, by the way, if you go to the right farm where something is not necessarily even, um, you know, fr uh, call it uh, grain fed or grass fed. Uh, pasture raised is really the term you're looking for, meaning that it's truly free and roaming as it should be in its natural environment and eating what it can from the ground, worms and whatever it can. Uh, we've destroyed the earth, the soil so much that there's no worms in them for the chickens to eat. And so we've had to feed them. Uh, but again, pasture raises what you're looking for because all of a sudden it's, it's in its true natural organic state. Uh, even some grade fed chickens, you know, they're still stuffed into warehouses, uh, being fed proper food, but doesn't mean that they're being able to roam and free. And what does that do to the hormones? What does that do to the stress levels? Uh, the anxiety of the animal there's, I'm sure there's many dog owners listening today that truly understand that animals experience anxiety at a aggressive level. So what does it mean for a chicken to be stuffed amongst 10,000 other chickens in a cramped up coop? Uh, and what does that do to its hormones? What you would then end up ingesting, right? So think about nutrient density and then think about food in its original state. Try Googling what a banana used to be. When you open a banana, you take a bite and you look at it, right? That splice, you see consistency. It's, it looks the same. 
bananas used to have seeds in them. It's a it's a fruit after all, and fruits have seeds. Large black seeds, like a watermelon. Like when you open a tomato, there's this uh, sort of encapsulation of this seed, like an artery looks like. Um, that doesn't exist anymore because they've been altered. So you also have to think about and do your research, spend some time on this. What does food look like in its natural state? What was it supposed to look like? And then where do you find that? And again, I can't give you one answer because it depends where you live and what you have access to. But there's always a way. There's always somebody who's harvesting and developing and growing in its its proper form. And you can find it and just eliminate what's not possible to find in its proper state because just imagine what it's doing to your body. So that's another thing to consider is nutrient density. Then you think about processing. Um, and we hear this all the time, processed foods, processed foods. And then you you buy a bag of organic, you know, chia seeds with quinoa, gluten-free, nut-free, soy-free crackers with the right branding on it, homemade by somebody, whatever. Um, and you that that feels safe. You have to think about processing still, even then. Yes, you've cleared the ingredients. You've cleared some insults that you want to avoid. But did it require processing through heavy metals? Was it built? Was it processed through machinery? This is part of the. So when we look at processed foods, there's some things that are obvious, right? The ingredients that are added, the preservatives, etc., to, to put them in the box, the containers that in themselves are sometimes toxic. But then there's the not so usual suspects of things that look good outwardly in their packaging and have all the right claims and labels, but did they still get processed in a facility where it was flushed through metals, which means you're probably having residue of heavy metals that you're ingesting? Is it a facility where once again, they have to clean the equipment once a day, once every two days, whatever that rotation is uh, for their good manufacturing processes, which is a requirement. What chemicals are I using to clean that equipment down that you end up then ingesting that are not required to be labeled as ingredients? So that's why this processing phenomenon that we think about, even if you get to the best of it, you still can eliminate certain things that are required just for safety and security and, you know, standards. So think about sort of farm to fork. What can I pull out of the ground that wasn't put through machines and equipment to get into a bag? If it's in a bag, unless it says artisan homemade by grandma, it's likely processed through machines and equipment, which means introduction of chemicals. Um, an interesting thing ancestrally, uh, I'm going to, you know, this isn't something I was going to talk about today, but since I'm thinking about this stuff, it, it reminds me the heavy metals and this will speak to the difference between what we do and what our ancestors did. There's a term called blue bloods. There's, uh, in France, you know, when the bubonic plague hit Europe and wiped out so many people, there was a certain region of France that didn't get hit. These people literally, their blood looked blue when they bled. You know, it's obviously that's a bit of an exaggeration, but to the point where people used to call them blue bloods, you look at their veins and you didn't have this sort of green phenomenon of the vein plus the red equals green. Uh, it was a very intense blue. So these people who were royalty, who lived a slightly more luxurious life, ate off of silver. They had silver plates, silver utensils, and a lot of us now know that silver has potent antimicrobial, antiviral activity. In fact, some people ingest silver and you have to be very careful about what you do there. That colloidal silver, again, will actually turn you blue and often, you know, maybe the wrong choice, but there's other things you can do. 
uh, that actually are effective. Uh, we can get into that sometime later, but these people are eating off these silver plates and utensils to the point where their skin, or sorry, their blood appeared blue, and they called them blue bloods. You can look this up. When the bubonic, when the bubonic plague hit, this population was completely skipped because their ability to fight bacteria, virus, virus, whatever they were, was being introduced to them was optimal because of the silver in their food. So why do I bring this up? Because when I speak about the heavy equipment and the chemicals, it reminds me, what do we now do? Well, we don't use natural organic utensils. You're eating Uber Eats three times a day where they give you plastic forks in the bag. A lot of us give our children plastic cups to drink out of and regardless of what it says, of how, what chemical it's free of, it's not wood, metal, water, natural uh, elements that your body was meant to handle for, again, 200, we have to go back to this, the 200 or 250,000 years of habits for which we're now designed. Plastic is very new, right? Plastic is a byproduct of uh, industrialization. It's incredibly convenient incredibly easy to use and it's changed a lot um, but it is not meant to be ingested so again that thinking of not only could you avoid problems but you could actually derive benefit from introducing woods etc you know why are chopsticks made out of wood and what can you actually uh, benefit from from using the right types of products in your home right types of utensils etc so anyways that thought just reminded me of that I thought it was an interesting thing I should tell you guys so what happens if you're doing things wrong? You know, we, we learn about um, leaky gut. We hear this a lot. Uh, what we don't hear much about is leaky brain um, because leaky brain leads to things like Alzheimer's, dementia, and those conditions are so prominent and so scary for people. In fact, it's the number one question we get. I don't want to do a DNA test because I don't want to know if I'm getting Alzheimer's because those people that say that don't realize that if you know what's coming, you can then take a detour and avoid it. It's like looking at your GPS and seeing that tree has fallen over on the road. So you're going to take a different path and you're going to avoid the tree. That's the whole point of having your genetics run and being able to avoid problems. So when we look at leaky brain, all of what we just spoke of, uh, if you're doing things wrong in terms of diet, gut microbiome uh, and all that gets affected and all of a sudden you start to have uh, toxic substrates entering the blood because you produce you have a leaky gut there's permeability and things enter the bloodstream that were never meant to what ends up happening is there's a thin layer of cells that are meant to selectively allow nutrients to enter your brain it knows what's supposed to enter and what's not when you expose that to toxicity, it weakens and it becomes permeable. And then all of a sudden things enter that were never meant to enter. And this is why we now say that Alzheimer's is the next major wave of chronic disease. It's not because there's more Alzheimer's. It's for two reasons. People are living longer, right? They're living sick. They still have chronic disease, but they're living longer. And so there's more chance to get to that stage where there's been caused, there's so much permeability caused that they're getting the damage, the neurological inflammation, whatever it may be, there's multiple reasons why you get there, uh, that can lead to something that expresses as Alzheimer's or, or dementia. Because we have the perfect storm of living longer, plus the wrong environmental and chemical factors, mostly based on our food and what we're breathing in, that will lead to that permeability. So leaky brain, the same outcome as leaky gut. Leaky gut is what? Crohn's, colitis, IBS. Like there's things 
that are inflammatory in nature around the gut, but then there's what gets into your blood and then causes other inflammatory issues. And which issue just depends where you're not doing well cellularly in the body, right? So now with leaky brain, very important because all of what we're talking about here today is what could either get you there or prevent you from getting there. Um, and this is why fasting is so important. So we always talk about fasting. Um, we understand that it increases growth hormone. So it's awesome for longevity. If you're fasting properly, you know, eight hour eating window. Uh, it also maintains a low insulin level for 12 to 16 hours. So all of a sudden you've taken that load off of your system and you're getting that spike if you're doing things wrong, but you can even without the spike have your 80 hour eating window uh, and manage your insulin response. So preventing diabetes and preventing so much more that comes out of having dysregulated insulin. But the one thing we don't talk about for fasting uh, and this again goes back to our ancestors and the way they eat. They didn't eat three or four or five meals a day and they didn't have snacks in between. Uh, they were hunting most of the day or they were harvesting and then they would have their main meal. There may have been something to fuel them to get them going, but there was one meal a day. That was typical. There was one meal a day and, and there was one, call it a semi-meal, a half meal, like a breakfast or a lunch or something that would get you going. And then there's your one main meal. So why is that important? Um, we think of fuel as fat and carbs, right? We think that we burn fat and once the fat is gone, we start to, sorry, we th the other way around. We think we burn carbs and sugar. Once the glucose is gone, we start to burn uh, fat. But there's a third fuel, which is protein. This is why you see, if you ever watch a show like Survivor or something where people are going out into the wilderness, you know, after some time they lose their fat, but they also lose their muscle. They haven't stopped being active. In fact, they're probably more active than they've ever been but their body starts to utilize the muscle as fuel because there's nothing else to go to. This is very important when it comes to fasting because as you're active every day, your proteins, your muscles, your amino acids, everything around that muscle muscular uh, structure, uh, the molecular structure, structure starts to fray. And it starts to break apart. And our ancestors did not live the reality we lived where they ate so much that they never utilized those frayed amino acids and proteins as fuel. Because they fasted, their bodies burned fat and burned these proteins that were sort of needing to be eliminated anyway as fuel because most of the day they didn't eat. So now where we're in a stage where we eat our meals and in between we're snacking just to make sure we don't feel hunger. When your kid's in the car, like they're grumpy, you shove, a, you shove a granola bar in their mouth instead of allowing them to go through hunger. We're no longer utilizing those sort of frayed amino acids and proteins as fuel. And now they're all of a sudden in our blood at a degree they were never meant to be. Again, if you look back at the 200 to 250,000 years and who we're actually designed to be. These Molecular, this, this molecular structure has the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, whether you have leaky brain or not. This means you're all of a sudden going into the structure of the brain with a substance that was never meant to be there, altering the infrastructure of your brain. What, what is your brain made of? Well, you just added a new ingredient that was never meant to be there because our ancestors didn't eat as much as us. And so they use this as fuel and it never crossed that blood-brain barrier. So we didn't have that challenge when I said earlier that your blood-brain barrier knows what nutrients to allow and what to block. It's an intelligent barrier that lets the right things in and prevents the wrong things from coming in. It didn't have to consider whether to let this in or not. 
So it doesn't block it and it gets in. And all of a sudden you wonder why Alzheimer's dementia uh, is such a big problem. People are living longer. They're getting to the point where they have, uh, you know, permeability because their brain barrier has broken down and been altered from toxicity. And they're having a constant exposure to these sort of frayed amino acids, broken proteins that get in. And so all this sort of adds up and comes together to if you don't think about the habits of, call it the caveman, however back, far back you want to go, but go back and look at what does the human of a thousand years ago look like? What does a human of 5,000 years ago look like? You know, 10,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago. What did we look like and what were our habits and how long did those habits last? Modern farming started 10,000 years ago industrialization, the food we eat today is really only 50 years old. You know, even prior to the 1950s, as I said about chickens as an example, they look very different than they did today. There was still chemical usage, there was still feed, there was still, you know, manipulate, manipulated seeds, etc. But the degree to which things have been manipulated today uh, exponentially changed after the 1950s. And so we only see that change because it's in front of us, it's in our face. But the change, even from that 1950 prior, take it 200 years prior to, uh, where all of a sudden there's variety, there's foods being shipped around the world, they're being air flown in. You know, you can get mangoes from Pakistan or China flown into your city and they're available for sale the next day. Um, you can order what you want online and get it uh, when, you know, it used to be something that was a special occasion for somebody of two generations ago. Otherwise, they had their meat and, meat and potatoes daily. So all this comes together and teaches us, and this is why I thought it was important to sort of add to the last couple of conversations. There was a couple of gaps missing because uh, we spoke about ancestral diet. We spoke about, you know, uh, weight, etc. But I wanted to put into context, what does it actually look like? Like what did our ancestors do? And just a few examples of the simple thing about what I said about fruit. You know, we truly don't understand because we don't think about the reality of our ancestors where things were seasonal and there was a purpose to what happened. And the purpose, whether you think of it miraculously or you think of it as that coping mechanism, right? Um, where, why, why did it happen? Why are these fruits available? Or why do we know to eat them? Whatever it is, is the outcome you have to look at. The outcome is that they make you fat. If you're eating fructose in high volume, you will store stomach fat and you will then be ready for the winter. If you're eating fructose all year round and you wonder why you can't lose those last five or 10 pounds, right? Uh, not to, I'm not saying to stop because there's great benefits, but you have to understand uh, volume to what degree. And one of the key things, you know, to take away from today is nutrient density. You know, do not take for granted that even the best of what you eat today is what is meant to be. Look at what food used to be. Google and research, you know, 100-year-old potato, 100-year-old banana, 100-year-old onion, and see what they used to look like. And understand that the nutrition value hasn't changed. It's the mass that has changed. It's the same nutrition spread into more calories. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you wonder why weight is a problem, where mood and behavior is a problem, you know, where insulin is a problem, where... 30% of the United States is either diabetic or borderline diabetic. This is what's getting us there. Um, so from here, it requires work 
on your part. Meaning we don't have enough time for me to go into every fruit and vegetable and every animal and every piece of meat that you could buy and eat. Uh, but you can do the work yourself. And I would urge you to, again, what I said in the beginning, understand your ancestry. Where did you come from? What did the seasons look like? I live in Toronto where there's a very clear four seasons. It's almost like on the day it happens. You know, we shift from summer to fall. You can just see the shift. And then fall is a very solid autumn. You can see it's clear. Uh, a lot of countries didn't have that. Right? So understand where you come from. What was ancestral jurisdictionally relevant? What did those people eat? And then start to understand whether you know your DNA profile or not, what you're designed for. Then tweak, where do I now live? And what adjustments do I need to make based on the climate, based on the weather, based on the vitamin D availability, based on the length of the winter, you know, uh, based on what the ancestral diet of this place that I now am in was. You know, what did they eat? Because what they eat probably helped them cope with the reality of the environment. So with that, I close off on these sort of two, three episodes we talked about when it comes to food. Uh, we will dive in a little bit more about some very specific topics, but I hope that helped you sort of get more guidance on how to eat.